Our Old Testament reading this morning is uh, Psalm 46. Psalm 46, let's hear God's word together. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. And our New Testament reading from John 14, continuing on in John chapter 14, uh, this time with verses 7 through 11. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him, and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our God, again, we uh, come to you looking to you to bless the reading and now the preaching of your word. We pray that you would make it effective. Uh, we make, pray that you make it powerful in our hearts and in our lives to make us more and more like Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. What is it that is uh, burdening the heart of Christ right before his crucifixion? That's, that's, this, that's where we're at in John 14. It's, it's the, the night before Christ is going to be crucified. And, and this section of John here in the Upper Room Discourse is, is all about what is on Christ's mind and on Christ's heart as He faces that, that hour. He's, he's going to the cross tomorrow. He's going to bear our sin on the cross. He's, he's, he's bearing the, the attack of Satan and the powers of darkness. He's going to bear the full force of God's wrath for our sin. That's what's going to happen tomorrow for Him uh, in the context here. What's on his mind and heart 
at a time like that? Well, we see in the context here, his heart is troubled. We, we looked at that last time. His, his heart is heavy because he is facing God's wrath for our sin and he's going to bear that for us. But even as his heart is troubled, he's gathered his disciples around him and he's, he's going to teach them. He's, gonna, he's going to, to instruct them. He's going to, to show them his love for them. He's going to wash their feet and, and, and he's going to share with them words of comfort. He says, as, as John 14 begins, let not your hearts be troubled. See, his heart is troubled that ours might not be. That's what we saw last time. And, and so he's burdened that his disciples might not be discouraged in the face of what is about to happen. He's burdened for them. And brothers and sisters, he's also uh, showing his love here for us. He doesn't want us to be discouraged. As, as we read the word here, as we read these verses in John 14, he, he calls us not to let our hearts be troubled. And it's not just that he doesn't want our hearts to not be troubled. He's not, it's not a suggestion. It's actually a command. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't give in to the discouragement and, and into despair. Well, then he begins telling us why. And we, we saw this last time as he unpacked for his disciples the remedy for heart trouble, spiritual heart trouble, discouragement. He, he says to his disciples, believe in me. He points to himself. He says, I'm the answer. I'm the remedy for your troubled heart. He tells his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them. He tells them that he's going to bring them to himself and that his goal is that, that, that they might be with him where he is. That's... That's his love for them. And he tells them that he's made a full provision for them to get to the place where he is going. He is the way, the truth, and the life, he says. He's the, way who gets, he's the one who gets us to the Father. That's how Christ addresses troubled hearts, heals our troubled hearts. That's what we saw last time. But he's not done. That's not all he has to say as he addresses uh, the disciples' discouragement here. The disciples are about to see, right, they're about to see Christ taken away by an angry mob and, and crucified. Their whole world's about to fall apart. So, so Jesus is bracing them for that. So, so he, he wants to tell them more. He wants to encourage them yet more. And so he goes on and he tells them yet more reason why they do not need to let their hearts be troubled. And that's, that's what we see in verses 7 through 11. What, we, what, what else do we need to know to brace our hearts against discouragement? Well, so that's what 7 through 11 is about. It's Christ going on to continue talking about this same theme. Well, what is it? What, what, what is the message of verses 7 through 11, which Jesus thinks is so relevant for addressing troubled hearts? Well, it might not be what we expected. What, what, it's not what we, we might think it would be. Because he starts talking here about the mysteries of the Trinity, about how the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, and there's, how there's this interpenetration of the persons of the Godhead. You might say, why are you telling us this? Now, tell us more about the place you're getting ready for us. Tell us, tell us more about heaven. Tell us more about how nice it will be. Or why, why tell us now about the mystery of how the Father and the Son relate to one another in the Godhead? Isn't that kind of obscure and, and irrelevant to the struggles and doubts and difficulties of my troubled heart? 
But of course, if Christ thinks this is what he should tell his disciples as the remedy for, for their discouragement in the face of what's about to happen, then, then nothing could be further from the truth that this is irrelevant and obscure. The truth that Jesus is teaching us here is the bedrock of our encouragement. It's the basis for everything he just said in, in the, first, the first few verses of John 14. This is where our comfort rests. He's, he's saying this, I am the full, perfect revelation of the Father. So you can rest in that knowing when you know me, you know who God is. When you know Christ, you know who God is for you. And there's nothing uh, that's more vital to bringing us uh, peace in Christ than that and and healing our troubled hearts than that. So that's what we're going to unpack this morning. How Jesus is the full, final revelation of the Father and how we can rest our hearts in knowing the Father through Him. So our first heading, from now on, you know Him. We start in verse 7. Let me read the verse. Jesus says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. And from now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. This verse is all about knowing God. That's, that's the remedy Christ is applying to us here. Don't be troubled. Know God. What does it mean to know God? We use that word know for all sorts of things, but, but knowing in the Bible carries the weight of, of knowing in your mind, but also knowing experientially. It's, it's, it's used of, of how a husband and wife know each other. It means I know you, I know you deeply and personally, and I love you. That's, that's the kind of knowing that Jesus is talking about here. It's striking then, uh, surprising, that he then says to, that he says to his disciples like this, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. You can imagine the disciples hearing that and thinking, of course we know you. Haven't we known you, Jesus? We've been following you for three years. We've, we've been learning from you. We've been getting to know you and to trust you. And we've seen your miracles. Of course we know you. What do you mean, if we had known you? And then even more surprising, Jesus says that if you'd known me, you would have known my Father. You can imagine the disciples saying, we would have known your Father. We're we're Jews. We grew up uh, in the the synagogue learning the the law of God, learning all about who God is. We've been circumcised. Uh, We've we've been celebrating the Passover. Of course we know God, the Father. What's Jesus saying when he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father? Well, he's, he's not saying, I don't think, that they haven't known him at all or known God the Father at all. I think he's saying this. You are about to know me far better than you've ever known me. You're, you're about to know the Father far better than you've ever known the Father. Your knowledge of God is about to increase so much that by comparison, you'll, you'll look back at what you knew of God before and you'll say, I didn't even really know Him before that. Yes, yes, they, they've known Christ, they've known the Father, but, but that is about to grow so much, so exponentially, that they'll look back and say, we didn't, we didn't really have any clue, did we? And this is an expectation the Old Testament itself actually sets up. Uh, we read about this in several places. One of them is in Jeremiah 31, a, 
one of the great prophecies about the new covenant. Um, Listen to verse 34 of Jeremiah 31. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Jeremiah isn't just prophesying here. More people are going to know God. He's, He's envisioning a time when there's a far deeper knowledge of God than the people have ever had. We see Christ himself talking about this, pointing to this in other places in Scripture as well. Uh, a, a good uh, spot to look is Matthew 11, 11. He says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus says, John the Baptist is the greatest of the prophets, greater than Moses and David and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah. But then he says, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater. How can that be? Well, because the, 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 the youngest Christian, the, the least in the kingdom of heaven, knows more of God and has seen more of the glory of God in Christ than any of the Old Testament prophets ever saw. We have come to know God better than anyone in the Old Covenant ever could because we've seen Christ. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples here in John 14, 7. You are about to know me and know my Father so much better than you've ever known me before. That by comparison, you'll look back and say, we didn't even, we didn't know anything then. It's, it's like a husband and wife after 50 years of being married together, loving one another, looking back at their wedding pictures and, and saying to each other, I, I thought I knew you then. I barely knew you at all compared to how well I know you now. Well, the question then is, when Jesus says, from now on you do know him and have seen him, here in verse 7, what what is the now? So if the disciples, they're going to know Jesus, they're going to know God the Father better than they've ever known him, when when is that going to happen? Well, I don't think Jesus means that right this minute, as I speak these words, uh, that change is going to take place. I think he means with the events that are about to happen which are going to change everything. His crucifixion, His resurrection, His ascension, and then as the Spirit comes uh, at Pentecost. Jesus talks about, about this in the Gospel of John, about these events at the end of His life and ministry as the hour. Not a literal hour, but, but the time that is the, the climax and the focal point of all redemptive history. He says in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. That climax of redemptive history has come. That's the now that I think he's talking about. Because we see this in the other Gospels, right? After Christ is raised from the dead, that's when the scales really come off the disciples' eyes. And they, they start to understand things like they never understood them before. They start to see the significance of Christ's work and, and everything that he did in his earthly ministry uh, suddenly has so much more significance and, and meaning for them. The Holy Spirit comes, and then they, then they really understand who Christ is and how He's the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And then they really know Christ and His Father. I think that's what Christ is talking about here when He says, from now on, you know Him and have seen Him. Well, all right. Um, again, why is Jesus talking to His disciples about this now? How does it bring comfort rest to them? How does it bring comfort and rest 
to us and discouragement that we might face? Well, uh, it's this. He's saying to them, You've, you, you're going to know, and, and we could say to ourselves, we have come to know God as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Old Testament believers didn't have a real concept of that, that, they're, they're, that God is, is three persons, that He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that, that we can call God Father. That's really, that, that, uh, that's, that's previewed in the Old Testament, but calling God Father is really a New Testament thing. It's, it's there in the Old Testament like an acorn. In the New Testament, it's a towering oak tree. And, and listen carefully, brothers and sisters. It's not just that we can call God Father, as, as sweet as that is. It's, it's this, that in calling God Father, we are entering into the very heart of the relationship between the Father and the Son. We are, we are allowed to call the Father by the name that the eternal Son of God calls Him. We're, we're, we're brought into that fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so we can know Him personally and intimately. This is, a, this is a glorious privilege. Jesus is saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. You are coming to know God in this richest of ways, like you've never known Him before. Well, where, where do we come to know Him? That's where Christ turns next. As he, as he tells us, He says, in Myself, you see Him. That's our second point, verses 8 through 10a. Christ showing us where we come to know God this way. In Myself, you see Him. Let's start with Philip's response to Jesus' words here. Jesus has said, from now on you know Him and have seen Him. Philip responds to that. The disciple Philip responds with what sounds like a very uh, spiritual request. He says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. He's asking for a theophany, for a visible display of God's glory like, like Moses saw on Sinai or, or, uh, or, or others in the Old Testament saw at times. He's saying, show us, show us that. Show us a, a display of God's glory like that. And, and that is all that we need. We'll be happy with that. That's what we all want, to see the Father, to see God in His glory. Jesus' response basically is, you're looking at Him, Philip. He actually rebukes Philip here. He says, have I been with you so long and still you do not know Me, Philip? Philip said, show us the Father, Jesus says, have I been with you so long? He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Those words that he uses here are simple, but they contain a profound depth. They, Jesus is, 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 is revealing to us a mystery here that is beyond uh, the ability of our minds to comprehend. He's giving us a window onto the Trinity. God is one. There aren't three gods. He's one essence. At the same time, He exists in, in three persons. The, the, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Yet they're all the same in essence, equal in power and glory. And, and Jesus is talking about how, how there's an interpenetration of the persons. 
where there's not a division between them. Where, where one is, there they all are because they are one, even as they're three. The whole Trinity is involved in every act which is ascribed to any person of the Trinity. And, and yet at the same time, the Father is not incarnate. The Spirit is not incarnate. The Son is. There's a mystery here that, that we cannot comprehend. Depths upon depths here. Our response should be to fall down and worship. But there's more than mystery that Christ is revealing to His people. In fact, the mystery itself really isn't the focus. The focus is revelation. It's not on what's being obscured, but what's being made clear. Jesus is saying, in me, you see with perfect clarity who God is. Yes, you see here depths of mystery you can't comprehend, but, but look at how perfectly and clearly and fully I show you who God is as you look at my person and my work. How do you think of God the Father? What's, what's the Father like, brothers and sisters? Do you know the Father? What's, what's your perception of God the Father? I think sometimes in our circles we can have the idea that the Father is, is, is perpetually angry with us for our sin. Our sin has offended Him and He's full of wrath against us and it's only because Christ died that He's not angry with us, that, that Jesus sort of twists His arm behind His back and, and just barely persuades Him to tolerate us. Or, or perhaps we might not think that He's outright angry with us, but we doubt that the Father cares for us. He seems distant. We doubt He loves us. We, we talk a lot about His glory and His desire for His glory and, and how He wants us to be made more like Christ. And we can say, well, He doesn't care about how I feel. And, and, and the, the circumstances of our lives, the, the suffering we go through, can make us feel that way. That his, his love is more of a commitment to His glory than it is all, at the same time a real interest in me. Where do we look to see who the Father really is? Well, we look at Christ. Jesus says, you look at me. I'm the clearest revelation of who God is. You see God when you see Christ. And, and we see this most clearly in the events that are about to happen. Jesus said earlier, right, from now on, you, you see Him and you know Him. Talking about the events that are about to happen of His death and resurrection. He's saying that, that as, as I go to the cross for you, see there the Father's love for you. See, see His love and grace for you. Yes, the cross shows us Christ's love, but it, it shows us the Father's love. This is what we sing in that, that hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Or that famous verse, For God so loved the world. God loved. That's what we see. The one who loves us so much that He gave up His Son for us. Not so that He could love us, but because He already did love us from everlasting. So as, as Jesus dies on the cross, that shows us who the Father is for us. As He rises from the dead, it shows us who the Father is for us. The One who, who has justified us and accepted us in Christ. That's who God is for us. As, as Jesus rises in victory over death, it shows God's commitment to, to eternal life and giving us eternal life in His Son. 
His desire, God's desire, the Father's desire, is that we might be in glory with Christ and with Himself. There are deep, deep wells of comfort here for us. Again, this is Christ's point as He's, as he's ministering to His disciples uh, in the face of the discouragement that's about to come. He's reminding them who He is and who the Father is and how that they, they are about to see more clearly than ever who the Father is for them. Brothers and sisters, uh, look to the comfort that's here for you. Look at God's love for you in Christ on display in Christ. There is nothing that can separate us from His love and nothing that happens to us outside of His love for us. It's a deep comfort for us. But there's not just comfort. There's also a challenge included in this passage that we're working through. And that's what we see in the final verses, verse 10b through 11, a challenge to the disciples. Jesus is calling the disciples to believe Him, to believe who He is as the revelation of the Father. In verse 11, He gives His disciples what's really the main command of the whole section here. He says, Believe Me that I am in the Father and the Father in Me. And again, it's interesting that He's saying, Believe Me to His disciples because surely if anyone believes in Him, it's these disciples. But Jesus is challenging them. He's He's telling us, you can, you can see me, but not really see me. You can, you can say, sure, I, I believe in Jesus, I know who he is, but not actually know him and trust him. This happened for so many of the, the Jews. We read about it all through John's Gospel. We, it happened to Judas, one of the twelve, there with Christ. They, these people saw Jesus. Some of them for a time believed in him in a sense. They saw him cast out demons and raise the dead and heal the sick. And they saw him preach and teach and forgive sins. But so many of them didn't really see him and trust him. Many of us have probably been in church for a long time. We've we've seen him. We've heard his word. We've 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 read of him in the gospels. We've heard him proclaimed from the pulpit. But have you seen Christ, who he really is? Do you believe that He really is the full revelation of God? The Word made flesh, made, made manifest, made obvious and clear to us who God is. Maybe you hear the question, have you seen Him? Do you believe in Him? And your answer is, well, of course I do. That's an answer to be aware of. A better, a better instinct, as we hear Christ say, believe me, is, is you're right. I need to make sure I do. I need to know you more, believe you yet more, see more of, of your glory. Maybe your answer is, you know what? I'm not sure I believe you. I'm not sure I believe that you really are the full revelation of who God is. What should, what should we do? No matter what our answer is to, the, to Christ's challenge, believe me, what, what, what does He call us to do? And what does He call His disciples to do here. He says, uh, look at the signs. Follow the signs. So verse 10b, Jesus talks about His words and His works. He says that His words and His works are both done out of the Father's authority. They reveal the Father. Then in verse 11, He talks about His words and works again, and He says, believe Me on the basis of, of what I say. He's saying, take Me at My word. He, he said, the words I speak, I speak by my Father's authority. 
believe me for the sake of my authority. He's, he's saying my words and my works are, are God's words and works and my words and works. What's he doing there by, by pointing our, our attention here? Well, first he's, he's drawing this tight connection between what the Father does and what he does. He's saying, the words I speak, the works I do, are done by the authority of my Father, and they reveal the Father, and at the same time, they're my words and my works. The second thing he's doing is drawing a tight connection between his words and his, his, words and his works. He's kind of equating them. He's saying, my words tell you who I am, and my works tell you who I am. That's a theme that, that runs through the whole gospel of John, that the whole, the whole book is structured by these signs, which are a mixture, a melding of Christ's words and Christ's works, telling us and showing us who he is, telling us and showing us who the Father is in these signs. So think, for example, the, 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 maybe one of, the, one of the most dramatic, climactic of all the signs he does in this book, the raising of Lazarus. There are words there. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Then he, then he goes to Lazarus' tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus obeys. Death itself is bent to Christ's will. Lazarus comes out of the tomb. And the point there is Jesus is who he says he is. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he raises the dead. His words and his works are, are a sign pointing us to who he is and who the Father is. This is, this is the whole point of, of this gospel, that we seek who Christ is and trust in him. John 20, at the very end of the gospel, gives us the purpose statement of the whole thing. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's saying, believe me. Follow the signs. Believe that I am who I say, say I am. Believe my word and believe my works. Don't just assume you know me. Don't just, don't just kind of presume upon it. No, no. Look at my words and look at my works. Look long and hard at who I really am. Are we doing that, brothers and sisters? So, you know, week by week, coming to Lord's Day worship, saying, Lord, show me Christ and show me yourself in Christ by his words and works. May my heart be uh, more and more open and, and eager to hear your word and know who you are. Are we doing that day by day, going to God's word and, and praying, show me Christ and show me yourself? So there's a challenge and a warning for us here. But again, the overall, the overall idea here is not this challenge. That's a part of it. But it's the comfort that Jesus is trying to bring to his disciples. He's preparing them for what's about to happen. As, as we started by saying, the whole uh, upper room discourse happens in the shadow of the cross. Everything in the disciples' world is about to be turned on end and, and, and kind of blown apart. They're going to be running away from Christ, denying Christ, abandoning him. And, and Christ knows that and he loves them, so he's trying to get them ready for that. And he's saying, no matter what happens, how much it surprises you, overwhelms you, and terrifies you, don't forget who I am. Don't forget who the Father is. Follow the signs. 
Remember my words. Remember my works. Remember that everything I've said and everything I've done has shown you who God is for you. Don't be discouraged. Brothers and sisters, there are so many things which are clamoring to discourage us. It's been a discouraging year in many respects. There there have been personal trials we've gone through and, and public ones too. Go back to Christ and His Word and look at His words and His works which show us the Father. He is the the complete picture of who God is. He is God Himself. This is the bedrock of all comfort. You know who God is for you in the loving work of Christ. So let's rest. Let's rest there. Let's pray.